Love this podcast? Support it and sponsor today. Simply head to OzCastNetwork.com for details. We make USAA insurance to help you save. Take advantage of discounts when you cover your home and your ride. Discover how we're helping members save at USAA.com slash bundle. Restrictions apply. G'day and welcome to another episode of Wards Don't Matter, the podcast that is all about asking the desperate question of whether the Best Picture Oscar winner matters anymore or not. And on this episode, we're going to be covering something, um, well, we'll touch on what it is in a second. But my name's Andrew Pierce, and uh, welcome to the show and uh, welcome my co-host, Dave. Welcome, Dave. How, anticip- how uh, excited <sighs> are you for this particular entry? Andrew, why do you keep doing this to me? This is <laughs> like, man, uh, it's interesting because I do uh, a number of podcasts. And one of the podcasts I do is Queer and Now, which is a podcast about queer cinema. And we do it decade by decade. And at first, we were going to start from the beginning, like from the 1930s. And we decided, now we're going to switch it up and start with like the 2010s. Uh, and this makes me think of that because like, man, who the first 10 years of the Oscars, there's some rough stuff in there. Um and uh, so let me just say, like, we're going we're gonna to talk about a movie called Cavalcade from 1933. Um, and just to give you a precursor to my thoughts on this, I'm going to read you my letterbox review, which is very short. Um, and I wrote, seriously fucking boring. Who cares? Um, so this is <laughs> this is where we're at with Cavalcade. Uh, so, yeah, super looking forward to this conversation. <laughs> Can't wait. <laughs> Great. Lovely. <laughs> So it's directed by Frank Lloyd. It's uh, got a screenplay by Reginald Berkeley and Sonia Levine, uh, based on a play by Noel Coward. Uh, and as far as I understand, in this particular film, there is only there is a, a song near the end of the film. Uh, one of the actual few good parts of this movie that was, uh, and the song was written by Noel Coward. So there is some original content from Noel Coward here. Um, I think the interesting parts about this particular film, it, it won three Oscars. It won Best Picture. It won Best Director for Frank Lloyd. Uh, it also won Best Art Direction, which is kind of like the editing in a way. Uh, Frank Lloyd went on to direct Mutiny on the Bounty, which won uh, the Best Picture Oscar a couple of years down the line as well. So uh, he has that kind of uh, lucky, illustrious um, thing in his history, I guess. Um but I want to touch on something that's quite curious about this year's Academy Awards. It's the sixth Academy Awards. And uh, it was announced at the same time that Cavalcade won Best Picture that uh, two of the, the other films that were nominated came second and third. Uh, this happened three years in a row where they announced what the runner-up films were. And what came third was Little Women. And what came in second was A Farewell to Arms. Um, the other films were I Am a Fugitive from the Ch- a Chain Gang, Lady for a Day, Private Life of Henry VIII, She Done Him Wrong, Smiling Through, State Fair, and 42nd Street. Um, I'm curious if this is something that you think, because this is going to be a more interesting discussion than Cavalcade. So that's why I'm, you know, top loading the episode with this, but um, I'm curious whether you think this is something that just like the unique and artistic picture Oscar, should the Academy have continued on doing this going forward? 
Uh, yeah, I think so. Uh, I really like that idea. I like, uh, it, you know, it's not an award, but it is like, okay, this is as an academy what we thought. Like, this is kind of the order of things, which I kind of like because then it shows you, you know, especially, <laughs> especially in a year like this um, where a shitty movie like Cavalcade wins. Like, I watched um, seven of the nominated films. Um, you're, doing the, you're doing the Lord's work, Dave. <laughs> Well, I mean, in this case, I feel like it was a reward uh, because I got to watch some good movies uh, instead of Cavalcade. Um, all six of the other nominees that I watched were better than Cavalcade. Um, so, so it was that you know. So, I, so you said Little Women was second. Did they say what was third? Uh, no, Did you say so that Little Women was third, and A Farewell to mm. Arms was second. Oh, farewell to arms. That's right. Yeah. Um, so yeah, I wish they had continued that. Like, I think uh, you know, it doesn't stop uh, people from being upset about who wins and who doesn't. But it would be nice to know, you know, who is close. Like in a, you know, in years, especially when uh, either when there's a lot of really great nominees or there's a big upset, like the year that Crash won. I would have liked to know uh, how close it was and who was second and who was third. Like, I think. I think that's an interesting way to, to do things. And I think especially as the list of nominees gets larger, which we're starting to see now uh, in the Sixth Academy Awards, um, where, I mean, how many was it? Like eight or nine uh, movies that are that are nominated. So, you know, it'd be nice to know. Yeah, ten. Ten total. Yeah. It'd be nice to know. Like, is uh, do they view more uh, – is Little Women a better movie in their in their eyes than The Private Life of Henry VIII? Like, where, where do these things rank? I wish they'd rank all of them, not just first, second, and third. Like, tell me – tell me the – I want to see the data, and maybe that's, like, the nerd in me. But I'd like to see that for every category. I want to know how close it was, not just who was first, second, and third. Well, I think that part of – I completely agree with you here because I think that part of what – I find really curious about the Oscars and one of the things which I've grown to appreciate over time is um, we don't really know who the majority of the Academy is. You know, nowadays there's some, you know, thousands of people in there. We don't know who all of those people are and yet they appear to vote as if people know who they are and therefore people are going to judge what their votes went towards or what they ended up deeming the best picture and hence why when something like green book wins you know we blanket the academy with this kind of um i guess uh, perspective that they think that oh no we need to show the world that we're not racist or something like that and yet we don't know who these people are so it doesn't matter and that's why I, yeah, I agree. I would like to see what the, the data is because I would like to know what came second or third. I would like to know that and see, oh, okay, sure. So it was close that, you know, Black Klansman came second or something. Um, and I, I don't know. I just, I, I like the notion that something better was almost going to be Cavalcade. Like, I, <laughs> I, like, I like that notion because it's... it's um, it's good, even though it wasn't Forty Second Street, which uh, I haven't watched all of the other films that were nominated. But Forty Second Street is um, a personal favorite of mine, and uh, yeah, I don't know. I would have. Yeah, liked it's. That I, I think it. 
I think it makes Cavalcade winning so much more upsetting because it was such a strong year. Uh, 42nd Street is phenomenal. Uh, Farewell to Arms is, is really good, uh, but very strange because it's very romantic. Um, and I think, uh, I think the author of Farewell to Arms, Hemingway, would fucking hate it, uh, because that is not really the book he wrote. Um, you know, I've mentioned my complaints to you about I am a fugitive from a chain gang because it takes, you know, half the movie to get to the chain gang. But it's it's overall it's an OK movie. Lady for a Day by Frank Capra is fantastic. Little Women, obviously, is great. I mean, Catherine Hepburn, it's like it's just a phenomenal performance. Uh, and even The Private Life of Henry VIII, which I'm not a big fan of, it does have a really good couple of lead performances. They are all so much better and so much more exciting and so much more engaging than Cavalcade. I like Almost every time I watch a movie that won awards, I even if I don't like the movie, I get it. Um, even the Broadway melody, which I think is fucking terrible and so far the worst Oscar-winning movie. Um, you know, you talked about it was the first time. It was in Technicolor. It was a musical. It was something different. Sure. Um, and Cimarron, which I don't like very much, but it's very much of its time. And it has that amazing opening and closing sequence. There's something there. Andrew, just help me here. What is there for Cap? I don't get it. Like, I just, I I had so many moments watching this movie where I felt like I should be feeling something right now. And I am not. Like, I don't, I don't get it. I don't, I don't get what the appeal of Cavalcade is. And it's shocking given who the author is because he is, like, known, Noel Cowley, he's known for his wit. I don't find this this film witty at all. Like, this is tedium. And it's so – and all the characters are so kind of upper crust, and it's just like I can't take you seriously. Um, like uh, I was a little more engaged with, you know, quote-unquote the help. Um, but like there's so many moments in this movie where I was like – I just kept pausing and going like how much longer? Like how much longer is this? This, this is rough. I, I did the wrong thing, which is usually I try and watch these films all in one go because, you know, that's how you should watch movies. But with this, I watched it over three days because it felt <laughs> interminable. Like, it, it really was. And we should jump into the plot a little bit. It follows uh, a family, Jane and Robert Marriott, who are some very wealthy uh, British... Oh, Wikipedia says they're well-to-do London residents. No, they're fucking riches shit yeah and yes it's it's it starts on new year's eve in 1899 and it ends on new year's day in 1933 and it follows their lives um going from the second boer war death of queen victoria the titanic even gets a look in world war one as well and uh, tangential to this is their help the 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 people who uh the servants of the house and their people who looked after them and everything and you know, the, my first perspective of this is that, like, as we we're talking about this film before watching it, uh, I had brought up the comparison to Cimarron because it's undeniable. Like, they're both talking about stretches of time and, and parts of history that people who are watching this movie in 1930s would have lived through all of that and experienced that. And so they had that, that firsthand experience and knowledge of it all. Um and I liked Cimarron, you know, I thought that it was a good film, but then I sat here thinking maybe I like Cimarron because that's not my history. And it was interesting because I was able to look into American history and see it from a different perspective. I didn't know that slice of history. And yes, it's not like a, you know, it's not a 
faithful adaptation of history per se, but it certainly gave me a glimpse into the world of America at that point. Unfortunately, Cavalcade is my history. I have a, I have a British history. My, my father is English. My mother's heritage is Scottish. So um, all of this that's gone on, like I have heritage of, of people who fought in the Boer War. You know, these, I'm only a couple of generations removed from that. So I look at this and I can't help but cringe because um, for starters, the acting is horrid. It is just so... It's rough, man. It's so British. <laughs> It is so British. Yes. It's so like the back row. I've got to reach the back row and make sure they're acting. And this is a it, doesn't uh, it? This is doesn't it sound like people? Film. There's talking in it. Doesn't it sound like people <laughs> making fun of British accents? Like as I was watching this, I was like, this this feels like mockery. Like the way that these people are speaking. And I know they're trying to get across the point that these are, you know, they're they're building a separation between the upper class and the help. But I was just like, I. I cannot take you seriously. I, I I can't do it. Like with this this level of speech and this level of expression, like you're not a human being anymore. Yeah. <laughs> like, and, yeah, and especially because there's a point where um, one of the the, uh, the 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 help they move out of the the house and after uh, Alfred, the the man of the the, the family of that small family goes off and fights in the Boer War and then he comes back after purchasing a bar of somebody and tries to run a bar and all this kind of stuff. And then uh, he be, does it pretty poorly. He's pretty average at running it and gets a little bit drunk on the uh, the produce and uh, goes and gets himself killed um, by just standing in the street and quite horribly mown down by, I assume they're police officers with a horse and carriage. So this is why you wanted me out of the way, eh? Now, just behave yourself. Pleased to see you again, milady, I'm sure. Welcome to our office. Well, proud and haughty, are we? Alfred, stop it, stop it! <laughs> Dear Evan, I'm so very, very sorry. I quite understand, quite. I'll come and see you again soon. You drunken great brute! You shut your mouth. You mind your business and I'll mind mine. Look here, old man, you better come up and have a lay down. Leave me alone! Snobs, that's what. Not a blasted snob. No, no. Uh, I'm not good enough to be at home when the quality comes. Oh, no. I'll show you who's good enough. You'll never be able to hold my head up again. Never, never. Oh. Who could marry that doll? A noble ladyship, I suppose. Well, we don't want none of her blasted charity right here. Get out of here. an accident. Yes. And 
his wife finds out that he's dead and she wails over his body and it's just like Alfred and it's like no this is like I should be feeling something of sorrow and sadness at this point but maybe I'm a terrible person I can't help but laugh you know it's and okay I am so glad you said that um and first of all it was a it was a fire engine that was uh, right. horse drawn not the Thank police you for but noticing close that. enough I was just wiping close the enough. tears of laughter away from my eyes yeah. <laughs> But there's so many moments in this where I'm supposed to be feeling sad or frightened, and I just started laughing. Um, and honestly, the biggest laugh of this movie to me, and this is awful, is the close-up on the HM or the RMS Titanic uh, logo. And I was just like, I mean, this is like it's like Forrest Gump, where like all these things start to intersect, and you're just like, oh, oh, this too, oh, oh, the Titanic. That's what we're. That's what we're fucking doing here. I just, who cares? And again, so much of this comes down to lack of character work. Like, I don't know anything about them other than, like, they're rich and their kids go off to war. That's it. I need more than that. I need more than that. And and this is, this is a, like, legendarily weak movie. Like, I'm, I'm almost impressed at how weak it is given that it won awards. Like, I just, like, like I said in that review, like, the whole time, I was so fucking bored. I just, and, and, and if you look at, like, the, the structure of it, I think it's interesting, right? Following this one family for four decades, and you start off on this, you know, New Year's, and you end on this New Year's. It's got a nice, a nice fit to it. But you need something in between. And honestly, there's nothing here. Like, I would love to talk to someone who really, truly enjoyed this movie, and after I get done shaking them, I want them to tell me why. I am I'm so confused. Like there are things in Cimarron, there are things in the Broadway melody where I'm like, okay, I can see how you enjoyed that. You're wrong, but I, I can see it. This I, I'm honestly clueless. Like how? Well the, the that Titanic moment is, you know, in my notes, that is the only moment where I'm like, hey, this actually seems engaging and interesting like the these are it's two lovers edward and edith and they're off the wealthy family and you know they're they're going and living a life and having a honeymoon or or you know planning at least a future together and they're doing it on the titanic and she says and it, it is very cringeworthy extremely cringeworthy but she says something along the lines of you know i would could die now and i'd be happy and like I've, I'm, I'm content at this moment and we all know like you're on a fucking boat and the the time has just said it's 1914 we know what's going to happen we know and then you know and it's a i, I thought that was a genuinely impressive tender moment and I was like, this is what the film has been missing. And then, of course, I know that we're going to kill these characters off. And yes, and then it leans into the the sign of the life, uh, the life boy thing uh, that says Titanic on it. It's just like, <laughs> please, can we not? Like, we know, we know. And, you know... You're Are we going to see this. a more unintentionally funny moment in the entire run of the show? Yeah. Like, I just I could not... I don't know. I don't know. So I listened <laughs> like, to... What? The, I purchased the Blu-ray off it, which conveniently comes with a DVD, so I can have two things to throw out into the trash at the same time. Um, but it comes with a commentary on it as well, and I listened to the commentary after watching it, uh, just as I was doing homework. I wasn't actually sitting there paying attention and stuff. Um, 
and the the guy doing the commentary states and this in this wonderful moment in case you didn't know because of the the fact that they're on a boat and it said 1914 um you know the the camera leans in and it shows us that oh this is actually the titanic and it's like jesus like even the commentary on the disc is just so like on board with this film. So that's the person you need to talk to because he quite enjoyed that movie and you need to go and shake him down. Um, but this is just a... <laughs> this, I, I find it... Um, I find it quite a sad film in a lot of ways. You know, if we're going to talk about the theme of the movie, which is uh, about the rich versus poor, I guess, and the whole idea, the whole concept of this movie, at least from my perspective, is that you know, everybody wants to be rich. Everybody wants to be wealthy. Everybody wants to, you know, reach that higher level in some ways. And yet, as we've shown throughout the movie, the, the wealthy people have this horrid view of war um, and horrid view of uh, going off to battle. And certainly the discussion about at the, the opening of the film as these two men are going off to fight in the Boer War, and they're their mentality is very much like, haha, yes, I'm going to go and kill some foreigners. And it's like, can we just maybe not celebrate war? And again, this is, you know, I should add for listeners, you know, we, we don't approach films that are old and actively laugh at them because they are old. This is just a bad film because, you know, at the time it was bad. It's, you know, it's bad now, it's always been bad, and so it's easier to laugh at. But at the same hand, it's uh, it's hard to not bring modern perspective to a film like this and ask them to have addressed the nature of going off to war. And there, it does do that a little bit later on, but it's so gung-ho and so celebratory. Like, I'm going to go and die for the Queen. And it's like, no. Right. <laughs> and you know, in our defense, like we didn't we didn't laugh at all quiet on the Western Front in a previous no. episode. Um, there are ways to handle this. This is all. I mean, you bring up a great point. It's not only it's gung ho, but it, like even though this is supposedly about like the tragedy of this family and every all these people, all these kids dying, like nothing seems to be taken really seriously. Um, and it's just kind of like, oh yeah, that's what we do. We're gonna go do it. Like not only is it like gung ho, but it's just kind of like, yeah. Okay. And even like, you know, we laughed about the Titanic, but even these two people dying on the Titanic, like it's barely mentioned. Like it just kind of fades to black and it's like barely mentioned even the dialogue later. Like, oh yeah, just two more people are dead. Who gives a shit, I guess. You know, and there's a lot of that. And I just, and and that is my major problem with this movie. If you're going to make a movie about the lives of this family and try to make me feel something, then actually go for it. Actually try to make me feel something. But it just feels like it's paying lip service. Um, to everything that's going on. Um, and we're expected to just kind of fill in the blanks ourselves and kind of pick it up wherever wherever they drop it. And the movie doesn't really do the work to, to let you do that. And the fact that this not only won Best Picture, but it won Best Director, too. Like, it, like this is a horrifically directed movie. Like, one of the big jobs of the director is to kind of, you know, with the camera, to guide your audience into feeling what they want you to feel. And in, this, and in my opinion, this movie could not fail harder at that like there is not a single character i care about like you know you have some of the stuff with with the help and you have alfred who's like you know of course and then they paint alfred as this like problematic drunk um you know once he goes off and starts his own business and it's like i guess you're meant to feel sorry for his wife um but like 
they don't give you enough good moments with them. Like they're mainly used for comedic effect in the, in the beginning of the film. Um, so like there's no, there's no human connection there. And the upper class people are so upper class and so distant that there's no connection there either. So even when, you know, the thing that should pro- provoke sorrow in a person, no matter what the death of their children, you're still like, eh, I guess just move on next new year. Have a good time. I guess like, you know, it's just it, this movie was really this was even more so than Cimarron and Broadway Melody. Like this was truly a struggle to get through. And it was such a steep drop off after uh, Grand Hotel, you know, where it's like oh, we we're kind of riding high on that. Oh, yeah. Old classic Hollywood. This is great. And then this happens. And especially again with a year that stacked, you're like you had so many choices. Why? Why? this? Yeah. <laughs> and and that's the thing that I've written down as well. It's like, how can they have gone a couple of years before from All Quiet in the Western Front to this? And which covers World War One as well. And it just... Now, arguably, the montage sequence that, it, that comes later on in the film is the one point of pure excellence in this movie. And I I would hold that moment up as an exemplary moment where... It shows the breadth of World War One and uh, these soldiers going off to war, and they're all singing. It's a long way to Tipperary, and it's cut in between. Like this montage just plays over these soldiers just walking off to war and dying. All the while, we get images of the the women who have just sung before these uh, conscription and and pro-war songs to try and get soldiers to enlist and be excited about war. And we have images of them singing, and then we have it gradually fades into images of the battles taking place and soldiers falling down and dying. And that is generally thrilling and genuinely exciting. But it's all of about three, four minutes of 160 minute, you know, 150, uh, no, two hour long movie, I'll say. Is 120. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, 120. That's it. It feels it feels like 160, but um, it really does. I yeah. When you said that, I was like, "Was it? It might have been." Like, I don't... <laughs> but it's just that that moment feels exciting, and it feels like they're actually saying something about war, and then nothing, nothing happens. And again, you know, echoing what you're saying, the the characters just aren't there. They're not interesting, and. Uh, Diana Winwood plays Jane Marriott, who is the the matriarch of the family. She's the person who leads this this family uh, through everything. And and at first, she is kind of this stiff upper lip person, but then, um, you know, gradually life kind of gets to her, and you know, tragedy after tragedy continues on. And um, she is a very stiff upper lip kind of person. She does this, that very stiff upper lip kind of performance as well. There is a lot of wavering bottom lip and very uh, stern looks off into the middle distance, um, which might work for some people. It didn't work for me. But uh, she does say something which I think is really apt and actually boils this film down perfectly to one line. And it's near the end of the film and she's lamenting about all of the tragedies that have kind of gone on and the loss of her second son and all this kind of stuff. And she says this powerful line, which I think is one of the few powerful lines in the film, where she says, my world isn't very big. And it's like, yeah, no shit. (laughs) Like, it isn't. But the film feels like it is. 
And there is a lot of staring out of windows in this movie. There is a lot of looking out at the world. Um, but it never actually kind of interrogates that. It never interrogates what it means to be rich and wealthy and looking at the world from afar and never actually engaging with it. What did you take from that? See, this is what I mean about it kind of taking the easy way out consistently. So I'm glad you brought up all of this. Like the the stiff upper lip thing, the kind of trembling, like it's not doing any of the work for real emotion. It's just, again, making you fill in the blanks, which you did very admirably. And the same way of this like staring out the window and not actually engaging with everything that's going on. That's exactly what the movie is doing. It's not engaging with anything. It's not having any discussions. It's not having any real character growth just because characters go through tragedies doesn't mean they go through growth and there's these huge jumps in their personalities where you're expected to kind of fill it in but it's not and i don't necessarily blame the actors most of this is is script work stuff that's that's not included there um and you know even in it's just it's just a movie that like it goes for it becomes like very mawkish as opposed to like any kind of actual emotion um, and it's also just like it's also just not very well acted and they don't have a lot given to them. Um, I think it leans on it leans on tropes of theater in the way that not only play acting for the back row, but this this kind of recurring bit of this cavalcade uh, going across the screen to kind of show the passage of time and which is stupid already. Um, but what that's doing is allowing them to skip anything real. And anything true. And if you're going to be a film worthy of remembering, I need something true. I need something real, especially in a movie filled with so much death. Like there should be some growth. Like this is, this is honestly, when it comes to character growth, like this is easy stuff. Like if someone goes through this, like there's, there's stuff you can work with here. There's a lot of emotional material and the movie tends to just bypass all of that in order to, like, you know, frame a scene nicely and make it look good. And I'm like, let's – if you want me to care about these characters, let's dive in. And the movie never does. Like, we don't – I actually think this movie is better if it – because it seems to make uh, everyone a main character um, and just kind of divide itself. But if this movie focuses on – I don't even care who it is, anybody. Just focus on somebody and have these other characters come in and out of their lives, then I think you can have some interesting character growth and some interesting movement. But the way it's set up, it's just like, oh, yeah, well, uh, now we're hanging out with this couple. Uh, now we're at the bar with the help. Uh, now we're off on the Titanic. Like It's just like there's no flow to it, and you just don't get anything from it. And I, you know, it's it's a movie that as I watched it, I kept thinking, like, okay, what am I missing? And like, honestly, and now talking to you and thinking about it after watching it like a week, uh, a couple weeks ago, I don't think I'm missing anything. Like, I really don't. I think it's just a bad movie, uh, and not. And I don't even mean like it shouldn't have won the Oscar. Like, it's a bad movie. Like compared to anything, not just compared to this, you know, this murderer's row of great films that came out that year. This is just a bad movie. And I, I, I agree there completely. And, and I think one of the, the criminal aspects of it is that it is more interested in the events that occurred and less about yes. the characters. And that, that that works, echoing again what you've just said, it works against the characters in points where it makes them completely unlikable and, and 
despisable as well. Um, specifically, there's a point where um, two characters who have not seen each other for a long time, uh, uh, Fanny and Joe, uh, he creepily watches her get undressed and then <laughs> it's like this horrid moment and then um, where he's just sitting there watching or standing there watching her get undressed and then... Um, London is getting bombed and somebody comes in and says, you've got to go to the basement. And then Joe's like, I don't know where the fucking basement is. And so Fanny comes up with the bright idea of going, yeah, we're going to go on the roof instead. And you know that that's only happening so they can see the Zeppelin out there and, and the theatrics of what's occurring. And there is an interesting shot of a bomb falling down on the city. And that again is a, a slight shot that, that, feels out of place in a film that doesn't have that kind of theatrical stuff in there. But you know that the film is like, we've got to push these characters out there somehow so they're, so we can see that and it makes sense. Instead of just going, all right, guys, you're going to go down to the basement. We're just going to show you what's happening out there anyway, like any logical filmmaker would do. And so it, it works against these characters. They feel dumb. And the character of Joe is somebody I actively despise. Like, he is such a frenetically excited character to go to war that is marvelous it's just marvelous like it's just oh, <laughs> if i hear that word one more time i'm like oh i feel like slapping something like you do know what you're going across there to do and he's like yes but it's marvelous <sighs> oh god see you bringing up this this idea of like them going to the roof it really hammers home to me um and it's a movie that weirdly now even though it won a bunch of oscars like kind of Gets a uh, gets a little shit talk around it, and we'll get to this movie in 19 years when we get to more modern times. Um, but Titanic, uh, strangely enough, like that is a movie that I think handles uh, major events uh, interspliced with a story about people very well. Um, and it's a very difficult thing to do, actually, for my other podcast, a podcast directed by, we're doing Michael Bay, and I just watched Pearl Harbor, and that is the definition of how not to do it. Um, so, and this is another, this is another one. Like, if, if you're watching a movie and big events are happening, and your first reaction is like, holy shit, these people are dumb. Like, this was a bad decision. This doesn't make any sense. That's that's a fault of the screenplay, of the direction, of everyone involved. Like, that is not the reaction you should have. But I do think it's the only reaction you can have um, to that moment, is it does feel not only stupid on the character's uh, fault, but very contrived um, from a directorial perspective, where it's like, okay... I'm not an idiot. I see what you're doing. And it's not like it's a movie that's set up that like, cause if it was a movie that was like, we're only following this character, it's basically first person. If it was, you know, 1917, if we were just following this one person's adventure, then you have to come up with contrivances to get to these moments. But like, why are you limiting yourself as a director? You could, as you said, you could just have them in the basement and then move your camera upstairs uh, and show what's happening. Like, so, uh, you know, there's a lot of dumb character moves in this movie, honestly. Like, there's not a lot of smart going on here. Yeah, but I, I also think that, I don't know if you read the article about the the person who originally wrote the script for the um, Danny Boyle film yesterday. And in it, they were talking about, it's a really fascinating article, and they were talking about how Richard Curtis, who ended up rewriting the script... Uh, could only ever see success in the story. 
could only ever like he could never see failure or anything like that. It was always just success, and because that's all that Richard Curtis ever knew or ever knows. He only knows success. He only knows privilege. And part of me wonders if that's what the filmmakers and the writers for Cavalcade were like, that they only knew privilege because every character is on a journey to being successful to the point that they're oblivious to everything else. And yes, things occur around them, but we're so, it's almost, it's just like the Titanic, it's offhanded. Like, yeah, we kind of see the Titanic, but we don't actually see it going down or anything like that. Um, we don't actually see them go off to World War One. We see trains come back and forth with soldiers, but it's all about like, you know, at the end of the film, the two remaining characters, these two privileged characters are like, yeah, no worries, dust your shirt off, we've got another year to do. It's like, no big deal kind of thing. And to me, it's just, this film just drips of privilege all along the way. And so much so that it's very, um, it's very British. I mean, it's an, it is a British story, of course, but it's a, it is, if I was to point somebody to the concept of what Britain might be in the early 1900s, um, this is it in the sense that this is the kind of film where it shows people living a life in service of their queen and essentially, and their king when the queen passes away. They're like, they would do anything for their queen or king. That's it. That's their only purpose is to be sent off to war, to exist, to toil in lives and live lives just in service of their queen and king. You know, in the hope that something might happen. That just kind of, I don't know. I'm not a monarchist. Um, I know that you don't have a queen or king in your country, but like, I don't know. It's just, I, I despise that kind of privilege and that, that kind of, um, that, that lording over a country in a lot of ways. Uh, and this film didn't do any, didn't do any favors for the Royal family at all. I'm not. Suddenly, uh, I also, you know. I also think it would have been interesting. Like if you have a character who's like gung ho to go into war, like it'd be interesting to like have another perspective and have that character, have a conversation with someone, about like well maybe why you wouldn't want to do that but there's none of that it's just it's so surface level like this is not a deep film like this is very very shallow and it shouldn't be when you're it's about like the death of this family and you know regretting the past but looking towards the future like this has uh it should have depth to it and god knows it's not because of the budget this costs like over a million dollars in the 1930s this is a big budget (laughs) like come on there's so much you can do with this material that they just leave they just leave on the floor here yeah i have like we'll wrap up this conversation in a second because you know this film doesn't deserve extended discussion on it but i have a question for you about one of the characters who like of all the bizarre things that cavalcade does there is a character called annie played by merle tottenham who is the most bizarre character i've seen in a best picture winner yet uh, who just laughs for no reason, whatever she wants. She's just sitting there, something serious is happening, and she just laughs. Somebody does call her up on it at one point when they say, Annie, this is not a time to laugh. And she's like, hi, my it bloody well is. What was your opinion of Annie? I mean, it, it's... It feels like... There is no reason. There's no way I can explain (laughs) why that happens. What I will say is I think it makes me think that this is a film that as shallow as it is, is very self-serious. 
Um, and not, and there's not a lot of moments of levity in this movie, or at least not intentionally. There are plenty of moments that I laughed at, uh, including the Alfred No moment and the zoom in on the, uh, on the Titanic. Um, but if you take it for what the, what the director was going for, those are not humorous moments. So it maybe, it feels like they needed to stick something in there to give people a break from the tragedy. Uh, but again, it's surface level stuff. It is not very well thought out, and it's just it's just a woman who can't stop laughing. It's like a it feels like a mental disorder as opposed to a script choice. Hmm. Yeah, that's that's it. That's all I thought as well. I just I I expected her to laugh when the Queen's um, coffin was going by. I expected there to be some kind of like like <laughs> no, that ah, was me. Yeah, take that, that was queen. me but, laughing. That's... Yeah, but she doesn't, and it's just like I just. It's just a bizarre film. So I guess yes. that leads to the question yes. then, does this film matter? No, no, God, no, <laughs> no, it doesn't matter. I, I feel like I forgot it already. Like it just, and there's, and there's even thinking about this movie in terms of like, okay, what did this lead to? What other films maybe are like it? And uh, no, no, it just, it does, like if this, if this movie magically was stricken from the record, didn't exist, like like The Patriot, right? A movie that disappeared. Uh, one, I would be happy if it disappeared. But two, like, would it matter? Would anyone notice? Like, other than other than people who are like, I got to watch all the Oscar winners, idiots like us. Um, no one would care. Uh, no one, one would accept that one. All of them, like yeah, except the, the this, except this well. one guy, except this one guy on the commentary apparently who'd be very, very sad. Sorry, sorry, buddy. Uh, <laughs> but other than that guy, like I just don't think anyone would notice, and I don't think this movie matters in any sense. Like this, let me put it this way: this movie matters less than either Cimarron or uh, or the Broadway Melody. Like, and it's not even close. Like, I would watch the Broadway melody again before I watch this. And I hate the Broadway melody. <laughs> like, it's terrible. So I, that unfortunately, is where I completely agree with you. I, I completely agree because I, um, you know, I didn't like the Broadway melody at all. But at least I felt something while I was watching it. And I think that's the biggest crime of them all is that if you're watching a film and you don't feel anything, it can be perfectly, you know, it can be well staged, well shot, you know. All that kind of stuff. But if you don't feel anything, then it is failed explicitly as a film. And this film, you know, you mentioned it correctly. Nobody's inspired by this film. I can't see a, a track record of why, you know, the, the impact that Cavalcade has left on cinema as a whole. Um, it basically came and went. And that's it. And, yeah, it's pointless. It is a pointless film. Um and you know i've i have purchased all of the best picture winners i have them all on my shelf uh and i know that you know in a year's time or two years time when i pick you know the 1950s winner off my shelf i'm going to look at cavalcade and go ha oh, yeah that's right that movie like it's just oh yeah be... i own that what an idiot yeah, yeah. <laughs> exactly one idiot but but uh, it's part of history, and that's why we're discussing it, because I do think <laughs> it is interesting to look back and see these kinds of films and ask that question, does this film matter? Does it mean anything? No. And no. it doesn't. No, it doesn't. It doesn't. <laughs> right. So, the social medias, let's get that out, and then we'll mention what we're going to do next as well, because this film kind of inspired something. 
uh, for Awards Don't Matter. You can follow us at Awards Don't Pod on Twitter um, and on Awards Don't Matter on Facebook as well. Send us an email at awardsdontmatterpod at gmail.com. Where can people find you, Dave, on social yeah, media? Yeah, if you want to find anywhere? me, there's uh, yeah. way, too ma- way too many ways to find me on social <laughs> media. Uh, I have too many accounts and too many podcasts. Uh, but I'd love it if you followed uh, my other podcast, uh, which is a podcast directed by, where we take a look at individual directors and kind of go through their filmography. Uh, right now, I don't know where we'll be when this episode comes out, but right now we're in the midst of recording a whole month on Michael Bay. Uh, so lots of explosions and me probably talking a lot of trash about michael bay and you can follow us um at directed by pod fantastic and yeah that's great i that what you're going through now is infinitely better than cavalcade so yes <laughs> yes yeah. and so yeah you can certainly check that out i highly recommend it as well and and I, I highly recommend listening to everything that, that Dave does. He does a fantastic job. It's part of the reason why I asked him to do this show because he's a great uh, person to talk films about. And that's part of the reason why part of what we're going to do for the next episode, which is kind of a bonus episode in some ways uh, for Awards Don't Matter, and it's really leaning into the title of the show, Awards Don't Matter, is that we are going to talk about, and this isn't going to be every month, but we're going to select um, every so often a Best Picture nominee that has kind of surpassed the history of the Best Picture winners. And for this particular month, we're going to be discussing the musical comedy drama film 42nd Street, which I grew up loving. I think it's a fantastic film. And uh, it is consistently considered one of the best uh, musicals of its time and uh, consistently rates as one of the best musicals on lists. Uh, and it is a culturally significant film in America as well. Um, and part of the reason why we're going to be doing this is that certainly as we go along and uh, now we're heading into the better Best Picture winners, we're also approaching some of the better Best Picture nominees as well. Uh, you know, we can't really do a, a podcast that is about the best picture winners and not discuss something like Citizen Kane or Wizard of Oz uh, or even going further down to like Black Klansman in a few years time, that kind of thing. Um, So yeah, what is your opinion on uh, discussing these kinds of the losers that have have stood up to time uh, more than the winners did? What's your thought on that, Dave? I mean, I think, I I mean, I'm really looking forward to this. That is. Yes. yes. I mean, (laughs) I'd watch, I'll watch it anyway, you know that, uh, so that's totally fine, it's not any more work for me, it's more work for you, which I'm always a fan of, um, but, uh, I think, I think it's, it's good for a number of reasons, one is because, you know, we're talking about, like, does this film matter, um, and how important are, is winning the Academy Award, um, uh, so this is kind of the other side of that coin, right, to kind of take a look at, like, oh, well, Sometimes you don't need to win the final prize to be remembered and to have an impact. Like, you know, you mentioned Citizen Kane. Citizen Kane may be of its time, maybe the most impactful film ever made um, because it is so ahead of its time and so modern, which, of course, someday we'll talk about that. Um, so I think it's important to talk about these things. And also, I'm really excited to talk about 42nd Street in general, uh, because it's a movie, of course, that I've heard about and know about, but I've never seen. Uh, so this gave me like the perfect, uh, the perfect excuse to finally watch like the original, you know, uh, backstage drama movie, which is like right up my alley anyway. I don't know how I hadn't seen this before. Uh, so yeah, definitely. 
The other the other reason I think it's it's good uh, to talk about this is, you know, I've never been a fan of podcasts that are like, let's talk about this piece of shit movie and tear it apart. Um, and sometimes when you have a movie like Cavalcade, we spend a lot of time being negative. Um, and it'll be nice to get the other side of 1933 uh, and talk about something that's actually good. Because uh, I'd much rather talk about a movie I enjoy, at least on some level, rather than a movie like I actively despise. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. And and part of it is to uh, highlight the films which might be forgotten in time, might be shuffled aside and, and just kind of neglected. And maybe that's a Best Picture winner like Wings, which is still remembered as being the first Best Picture winner, but it's kind of shuffled aside and people don't check it out as much. And hopefully this kind of podcast pushes films like that into people's eyes. And if it also means highlighting some of the films which were nominated for Best Picture that uh, certainly people might be aware of. Like, I only just watched Citizen Kane for the first time a couple of years ago, and these blind spots in our filmography are, are, you know, they're forever. They're endless. Uh, And hopefully, you know, discussions like this might encourage people who have been like, you know what, I have never seen Citizen Kane. I've never seen 42nd Street. I should check it out. And hopefully, you know, our discussion might encourage people to seek these films out and find out why they are so important in cinema. And um, I find that sometimes, certainly, I don't know if this is the case for you, but when you have other people watching it and discussing it, it feels safer to watch classic films because you're not going through it alone, Uh, which sounds like a weird thing to say, but... You know, it's just, it can be a little bit daunting to go back and be like, this is black and white, you know, is it going to have some racial overtones in it? Is it going to have some weird, you know, things from society that we don't do anymore in there that it's going to be difficult to watch? Um, but hopefully there's a bit of safety in, in numbers, I guess, yeah. Yeah. So that's what we're going to be discussing. Yeah, 42nd Street. It's going to be fantastic. Uh, so join us. I don't know when that's going to come out because we're recording these well in advance. And uh, But just subscribe to us. Um, leave a rating in all, all the places and stuff like that. Um, and we will see you in the next episode of Awards Don't Matter. Love this podcast? Support it and sponsor today. Simply head to OzCastNetwork.com for details. How powerful is the Cox Network? So powerful that one day, the internet will let your doctor perform miracles from thousands of miles away. Connecting to remote operating room. Giving a whole new meaning to the term house call. Operation complete. The Cox Network. With gig speeds everywhere. It's internet built for tomorrow, today. Cox, bringing us closer. In Cox serviceable areas, speeds vary and are not guaranteed. Cox terms apply. Other restrictions may apply.